This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Con Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Kahn, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Welcome back to Only the Strong Survive. Today I have Matt Boyce with me. Matt is the Senior Vice President of Media at Hemmings, a collector car marketplace and a legendary brand in our industry and services provider for car enthusiasts. You know, we're not shy about exploring the shifts and trends in different industries on this podcast, and I'm excited to hear Matt's perspective on the current state of affairs of media and especially enthusiast media how it influences his business. And and with a career that spans several decades, Matt has been at the forefront of leading and shaping operational teams within several different major media organizations. So Matt, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us today. And before we jump into the details, can you just kind of, for our our listeners, give a little bit of a kind of a synopsis of your career and tell us kind of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Thanks for having me on. I started with a company called Source Interlink in about 2005. And at that time, the company was predominantly in the point of purchase consulting business with major retailers. Basically what they would do is they would go to a Kroger, for example, and represent them to all the vendors that would want to place product at the checkout racks in the stores. And for that service, they would take a VIG off of slotting fees and all the outcome of that negotiation. To jump in really quick, so to clarify, so you're talking about not just like any POP, it's media POP, right? So it was magazines for the most part, or was it other things too? Yeah, it was magazines, gum, mint, salty snacks, all that stuff stuff. And so they would talk to you know everybody from a timing publisher to Wrigley for gum. And those vendors would negotiate placement based on a lot of science of how somebody comes in to check out where their line of sight is and all that stuff. And then they would take a, a commission off of, of that. And at the same time, they would actually manufacture the racks that would go into the stores with that layout for a profit to the retailer. So it was a business model that was great for a long time until more regulation came into procurement, things like that came into the equation for the retailers. And then it became a very consolidated industry and and not as lucrative. But you can imagine tens of thousands of checkouts with all those slotting fees and the cost of the rack being less, the difference going to the retailer, that cycle happened about every three years. It was a really good business for a long time. And and ultimately, they had to diversify and not be all in on just the consultative part of the business with the retailer. And that's when they decided, well, why don't we own some of the distribution of said product that goes into those stores? So they bought up a good percentage of the wholesale distribution of home entertainment products, which was mainly magazines. And that was around 2006, 2007, and then took it a step further and said, why don't we own some of the product that we distribute to the retailer, to the real estate in the store that we negotiate with on behalf of the retailer? And that's when they bought Prime Media, which most people in automotive media know as the original Peterson Publishing. So I remember when all that happened, it was sort of like the fish that ate the whale to a degree, because, you know, in our world, there was this big 
media company that produced magazines and to some degree websites and all that. And this is the layman's term, so tell me if I got this wrong. But my understanding at the time and even now was that those magazine racks, those newsstands, those gum racks, that was almost like a business within a business, right? Like you guys kind of controlled that little sort of chunk of the supermarket or whatever and could kind of to some degree have some autonomy in terms of what went on there. And did the Kroger's and the, the supermarkets, did they care or was it like, hey, we're going to give you guys this piece of real estate because you know what's going to work? Work and then we just get a piece of the action. Is that how that kind of worked? Yeah. So we basically started to participate with, you know, billing a large amount of product every single week because you had weeklies that would go into the checkout racks and then you had monthlies that would go in to the aisle way, which is where most of the Prime Media product fell, but they were monthly enthusiast magazines. So we would own the distribution into retail, which also meant that we would service the stores and merchandise the product. And that was what I was doing last, I oversaw about half of the company's merchandising business, field service for lack of a better phrase, until uh, about 2009 when I made the switch over to the media side of the business that they had purchased two years earlier. And I remember when Primedia became Source Interlink and it was sort of like all of a sudden the newsstand guys owned the publishing company and, and you came in and that's when you and I first met and became friends. And there was definitely like internally, I remember there was, there was a lot of like old school media guys that were ruffled. Like, what was that experience like going in there? And obviously you're coming from a totally different type of business. So what was that like and how did that go? It was interesting because the distribution side of the company was the, the lion's share of the revenues in the business. But the media side was the future. What happened to the traditional newsstand at retail was driven a lot by Walmart around 2007, 2008 they had an initiative to reduce their carbon footprint. And so they looked at all the categories in the store. When they got to magazines, they said, okay, here's a product that we take 10 of in the store and we sell like two. So it used to be two sides of an aisle with 13 shelves of magazines became eight shelves in the back by the electronic section and stuff like that. And so that squeezed a ton of product out of the distribution channel, you know, which obviously continued the consolidation all the way to the wholesalers. One large wholesaler eventually going out of business, Anderson, was one of the big three news group and then us. Ultimately, aside from being in the back of Walmarts all the time, you know, traveling a ton, I saw the writing on the wall that the media side of the business, Prime Media, was going to be the future of the company. And I had about 1,200 employees when I was in field service. So I had one of the CEOs at the time, I had to sit down with him and, you know, kind of interview you know, to keep going type thing. And so I had a line to him. I wanted to get over to media. Vegas was one of my territories. So at the 2009 SEMA show, I left the Walmart, went over to you know, the show, met with him, met with a guy named Brad Gerber, who I knew outside of, because we live in the same community, talked to him and then made the move over to one of the four groups across the country that had a bunch of aftermarket and some OEM advertisers in a territory, which was in the South Southwest. So that's how I got in. And then I started working with Doug Evans, who a lot of people in the industry know, Eric Schwab, who's still at Motor Trend Group today and oversees sales. And that was kind of the start of uh, the journey that has kept me in media. And you were there 
during some really wild times. So you said that was like 09 when you got in there? Right after the fall of the economy, of which the automotive category was you know, the tip of the spear, it seemed like. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it, it was like, I mean, I obviously I remember that whole era. And that was sort of like peak where there was probably, I mean, how many titles were there when you started at Prime Media, which turned into Source Interlink? So we had about 60 regular monthlies. There was also an action sports group, a marine group, and even an equine group. So automotive was most of the intellectual property they owned, though. You know, we're going to talk about your current employer now because I think they're doing some really interesting stuff. But just to stay on this topic for a minute. So as of today, I think that company has now changed its name a bunch of times. They have maybe two titles. When we got to Source Interlink, there had been an acronym created called Pepsi that started with Peterson and then the S, you know, and the I, Source Interlink. In 2015 or 16, the ownership structure changed. Private equity came in. They brought in a new management team. A guy named Scott Dickey was running the company at that point. What he kind of created with the team there was, and th this plays a lot into you know, media transformation was something of utility to the consumer. And that was a subscription video on demand platform that launched as Motor Trend On Demand in 2016, 17-ish. And that's really what got Discovery, who now owns it, um, I believe outright, to the table. Believe it or not, Discovery at the time didn't have a lot of the SVOD shops that we had had, and they saw Motor Trend on Demand, saw the how resonant the automotive you know enthusiast was, and said, "We're going to take that." They became a majority holder in a joint venture in 2017, and really spent the next couple of years doing everything they could to try to diversify the pressure off of just advertising, which had been the model for a long time, specifically in print, and you know, in years before that, more evolved into digital, and put more pressure on the consumer and the revenue model for the company. That's really what they wanted out of it. And SVOD for our listeners is is what what's the S in video on demand? What does that stand for? Subscription. Subscription, okay. Yeah, so think about, you know, Disney Plus, Netflix, you know, the OG in the space, stuff like that. You guys were early on that. So what happened? How do you go from 70 titles that, I mean, to my knowledge, most of those books were at least slightly profitable. I don't think any of them were hemorrhaging money. Yeah. How do you go from 70 titles to essentially kind of one? I think Motor Trend just announced they're going quarterly, Hot Rod's going quarterly, and that's about all that's left over there. And the websites are basically kind of reduced down to just a handful of kind of master sites. Yeah. So with a little bit of time and perspective, was this what needed to happen? Was Did something go wrong? I mean, it's certainly there's a lot of guys my dad's age that are not thrilled that their favorite titles are gone. And, and I think everyone's trying to kind of figure out a new mousetrap, but there doesn't seem to be, you know, Hemmings, I know you guys have a lot of stuff going on and we're going to talk about that, but outside of that and a couple of independent deals. It doesn't seem like a lot has kind of risen up to replace those titles. Yeah. Well, I think that that continues today to serve a population, right? And they tend to skew older and they tend to have more money, right? So how do you wean yourself off of, you know, the heroin that is the, the consumer that actually can buy the product that's advertised in the magazines and that pays a subscription price? And I think similar to other media companies, it was an evolution. So there were periods of time where, you know, in 2014, there was a reduction that was mostly to try to take the duplication out of four or five publishers originally, you know, 
Peterson, McMullen, whoever else it was, that had consolidated with two brands that represented early model Mustang, right? And at some point, it doesn't make sense for the consumer anymore, which means it doesn't make sense for the advertiser. Right. Yeah. Four or five magazines that all cover off-road trucks. Like that's a lot of redundancy, right? Yeah. So the deduping was kind of the first stage. And ultimately, the second step was like a reduction in just straight up super niche categories, right? That the argument can be made was being served digitally and not just by the same publisher that published the magazines, but influencers, you know, event promoters, new brands coming in, like whoever else it was. I think the the macro statement of all of it is something that you talked about in your podcast with Spinelli. I think it was number three. And that is you've got the economics of the secular decline of print with trying to invest and rise in digital. And every publisher boardroom talks about that intersection for the last probably 20 years, right? And so that force of nature ultimately makes the call. So what you do in that regard, I think made a lot of sense. How you do it is very hard to do. And that's almost always a live and learn. But I think that's kind of the overview of that chapter in particular relative to print. So it sounds like it was a kind of a nexus, right? So part of it was that transition from print to digital and everyone's trying to figure out what that looks like. And to your earlier comments, it sounds like part of it was, and this is not something I've thought a lot about up until now, is that there's another business model happening where if Walmart says we have a finite amount of real estate in our store, even if you get away from the whole like carbon footprint thing, I'm guessing at the end of the day, if they know that they have a hundred square feet of space that could be used to sell magazines at six bucks a piece or consumer electronics or whatever, that retail sale for a higher price item or a higher turn item is probably going to be much more valuable to them than selling magazines. So if the distribution model kind of gets disrupted and that goes away and on the publishing side, that model gets harder and harder because of digital, that's a pretty challenging environment to try and run a business in. Yeah. If I'm a wholesaler in that situation, I only have a couple levers I can pull. I can go try to make the manufacturers of the product raise the price, or I'm just going to charge more for every unit that I've got to put in from those manufacturers. And that is what was attempted and didn't work and caused you know one of the major players to go out first. And then ultimately the distribution arm of Source and Link 2 ceased business that was in about 2014, I believe. When did you decide to start kind of looking around and, and where'd you go and why? Because you were you were there for a long time and you rose to a pretty senior position at one of the kind of titans of the industry. So what happened? When 10 at the time, 2017-ish, launched Motorsport On Demand, it made a lot of sense because we were so dependent on the ad revenue model that it was a lot of pressure on that part of the business. So to put pressure on the consumer there, and then ultimately attract somebody like Discovery made a lot of sense. So Discovery came in, everything was about learning around that utility to the consumer. $4.99 a month, $1.99 holiday subscription offers, all those different things. And then how can the existing business, i.e. the media, the storytelling and the content, whether it's in print, digital, video, or whatever else it is, ultimately drive the funnel of people to convert into a subscription. And that learning went on for a few years. But all of the investment was going into that, which 
rightfully so. In the video. Yeah, in video and specifically that platform and not in, you know, the traditional legacy business. So, you know, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that that was going to be the halo of all the future investment in the company. That really was what provoked it. Best and brightest people there. I owe those chapters a ton. I mean, that that was literally working for three or four different companies, which up until a year or so ago was my whole career in this business. It was as much an undergrad as a master's and a doctorate. So, you know, it was the right model for the company. What I was doing overseeing you know, the aftermarket brands in the advertising wasn't going to get the investment that they were lending into the SVOD channel. So pretty simple, you know, you can kind of see where it's going and they had the right people in the right places for where they were trying to go, but that wasn't in my wheelhouse. <laughs> you know, one of the things I remember when you joined, I guess, Prime Media at the time, Source Link. I don't remember when the name change happened, but when you came to the publishing division, you came from sort of a sales role. And I remember you and I started interacting around that time. And it became pretty clear to me, even in our early interactions together, that you weren't a media guy and you weren't at that time a magazine guy, maybe you are now, but you were a people guy. And I remember even early on thinking, this is a good leader. This is someone who's leading a team. And maybe it doesn't matter if you're working on setting up newsstands and going to field visits or, or working at a media company. How did that transition work? And how did the transition to Hemmings, your current employer work? And as you kind of transition from more of a kind of retail focused sales management role to essentially running a fairly substantial media company to your current role, you know, how have you been able to sort of roll with those changes? And how has that made you a better leader? When I was in my late 20s, I was overseeing that field service side of the business for source early distribution. And it was a lot of part-time employees. Uh, I'd say about 90% of them were part-time, 10% of them were, you know, supervisors or directors that were full-time. And then you're also dealing with fortune level retailers. So you got that customer, you've got those employees, and then you've got the consumer that's coming in, you know, to the retailers that ultimately is your consumer as well. So a lot of people that come into sales, they start off as an individual contributor and some of them stay like that forever and they're wired for it. And it's great. I kind of skipped that part of it. You know, I came in where I was having to always rely on people to be successful, not my own success, you know, to make a living. So oh, the cake was sort of pre-baked. There was already an existing sales team that you came in to sort of manage. Yeah. I had some of the best that that some of them now are hanging their own shingles, rep firms and stuff like that. You know, you come in and actions speak louder than words. I always tried to come in with an approach of enrolling people into whatever the the culture was, the task at hand and all that versus just straight out being an enforcer. And you do have to do both. You got to try to find how is what you're telling somebody to do going to benefit them individually and also benefit you know the company, right? Whether it's a sales program or a new product that you're trying to launch and all that kind of stuff. So I try to straddle that line as best as I can, where you're not coming in you know, with the bat, like this is how you have to do it. Try to understand people's approach, especially, you know, so in situations where somebody's been with the company for a long time, they've seen more chapters than the one that you're you know, trying to lead. And so I've carried that through as much as I can, just that kind of enroll, you know, enforce and that balancing act. Interesting. Now let's talk about your new gig. So for those who don't know, so Matt is an SVP at, at Hemmings and Hemmings is a very different animal than I think where you worked before. I'm going to make that assumption, but just from the consumer yeah. side, I remember as a kid in the eighties, my dad would 
he was a subscriber to Hemings Motor News, which was this like phone book that would show up every month in the mail of essentially classified ads. It was basically a marketplace and it was printed on newsprint. And I think later in the 90s and early 2000s, they started the enthusiast publishing with different magazines and started employing people like Terry McGeehan and they have like more traditional, but yeah. I mean, the original Hemings Motor News thing, I don't know how many pages it was, but it was hundreds of pages of just classified yeah. ads. And that was it. Like if you were a collector, whether it was looking for cars or like, I need a fender for some weird, you know, rare thing, you know, a, a Nash or whatever, you could go into that section and probably find it or find the guy who would know where to get it. And I think it was family owned, right? For many years, really long legacy brand in automotive media. Where are they now? Who owns them? What's your role there? What's, it seems like there's been a lot of change. So tell me what's going on. Yeah. So the chapter of the ownership that has it now, which is family owned. So advanced media ultimately is the owner of Hemmings today. That chapter started with the brother of deceased brother, surviving brother, selling the business to, at the time, American City Business Journals, who was five minutes in, I believe, not very many years into being owned by Advanced Media. And they're basically a local business journal company in 40 plus markets across the country. The founder and the owner at the time was a guy named Ray Shaw, and Ray was a car guy. And Ray bought the company, pretty competitive bidding going on. I think Auto Trader was in the mix too, just after around 2000. Ray's son, Witt, is the CEO. Ray had a tragic accident and passed away many years ago, but Ray's son, Witt, is the CEO of the Business Journal Company, and his son, Jonathan Shaw, is the president of Hemings. So you have the new houses that own advanced media, and you have the Shaws that run the business journals with Hemings kind of sitting around there, mostly for shared services with the American City Business Journals. That is new to me. My mom and my wife run a family business. It's a volleyball club. And there's a lot to love about it. And there's a, you know, a lot of challenges too. So I'm kind of familiar with that model. So it's been nice. It's been something different for my personal career to be involved in. And it's a great culture. It's a small company in and of itself. Hemmings is based in Bennington, Vermont, has about 100 employees. A good amount of them are there. You know, some of them are remote, like myself. I'm in LA. And then the business journals is headquartered in North Carolina. So that's kind of what got us to the chapter. And you're probably going to ask about what have you guys been doing for the last year, right? Well, I see a rebrand. It's on your shirt. So, so yeah. there was a rebrand. And I, I and so tell us, yeah, what's going on? You're clearly trying to take something that was legacy and successful and had a, a lot of brand awareness, but was probably a pretty dated model, I would assume, sending a telephone book in the mail every month and turn it into something modern. What are you guys doing? What gives, right? Yeah. You know, they were on this journey in about 2019. They launched an online marketplace extension of the legacy brand. And then COVID hit. And that kind of put some things they wanted to do on pause. Uh, about the beginning of 2022, I'd say, some of the initiatives that they wanted to do then, they started to plan out. And that's ultimately how I got here and a number of other people as well. The whole kind of idea is our North Star is the marketplace. And how do we create the most frictionless experience for the consumer in the marketplace? And then you've got these legacy businesses, media being one of them, right? So print, online. They did some events. That's an area we want to expand in. How can those things 
evolve in and of themselves, be solving businesses, but, you know, not dissimilar to what the mantra was at Motor Trend, you know, around 2017 is how can we introduce utility to the consumer and then have these other businesses also feed the funnel right into for us is the the buy sell marketplace and then services which we've launched this year as well what does services mean that could, that's a real broad term about 90 percent of the transactions in the marketplace they're in the gray market they're done by private exchanges right so we play a little bit in that where somebody lists you know does a classified listing of a vehicle and then the exchange is handled directly between that seller and that buyer. What we try to introduce is insurance, shipping, which we aggregate. You know, we we don't white label it or anything like that. We we aggregate those things and try to get involved in, you know, the majority of where those sales are made. The remainder is where, you know, we have a pretty good stronghold for many, many years in, you know, the auction space, dealer listings, things like that as well. But the lion's share of it, you know, is done between the private seller. So to recap it, so it sounds like you've got sort of the consumer to the consumer classified business where I've got a 65 Chevy pickup truck and I want to sell it. So I put an ad up and some other guy who's looking for one sees the ad and calls me. And so I assume as a seller, I'd pay Hemmings for, for an ad in the marketplace, right? There's also the auction if they want to go that route, which how does that work? Is that a listing fee or is it a percentage? Is there is that how that works? Yeah. So it's a, it's a percentage. We also have a make offer product that's kind of similar it's just a flat rate but yeah the auction is a percentage that's paid yeah, it's pretty much all the same across a lot of the different players that are in the space it's about five percent and that's obviously an area we want to grow because we share in the success of of the sale and then there's the dealers so if you have a classic car dealership or whatever and you can i assume they have some sort of probably like a point of contact and they're doing dozens or hundreds of ads a month so they would have a different experience than a, a single consumer Right. Yeah, we have dealer partners. I think like a lot of the companies that are in the space, we have our own in-house customer service, right? So when you're calling, you're calling somebody in Bennington, Vermont. We have a team that deals with just dealers and we have a team that deals with, you know, classifieds and auctions and stuff like that. And then is there an ad revenue model as well, I assume, right? That's how I put food on the table. Right? Okay, that's your gig. Okay. Yeah, we have a media business. So we have an ad sales team. We sell some, you know, regular type of ad advertising to dealers as well but we also have you know premium listings and things like that that our dealer team sells to the dealers but we cover everything from traditional print advertising traditional digital advertising we now do things with audience extension we now do things with original programming sponsorship and integration that's something that's newer not completely brand new but becoming a bigger part of that that side of the business as well we still have our circulation which is all done in-house that's handled by a team that includes customer service in bennington vermont and then the editorial side so the, the story storytelling side of it. So we have a team of editorial, a network of freelancers that do things with the written word as well as host some of our video series as well. What role does original content play in a business like Hemmings that is sort of a mix of content and classifieds and marketplace and all that? Yeah. So the primary monetization of that is mostly looking at it from a marketing perspective is how can we educate and provide value to the consumer? that may not be familiar, and in a lot of cases they're not, with Hemmings in the storytelling part of it. 
And then secondarily, we can monetize that with advertisers. And that could be done directly or programmatically, right? If, if you don't have video on site from an advertising perspective, you're not going to garner, you know, a lot of the benefit of higher CPMs and things like that. That's something that now we're able to do. We have video hosted on our own and operated site now, um, which has been great. We've had that for a little under a year. Um, but yeah, so the media part is paramount for our success in the market marketplace that has a lot to do with how we tell the story. As you guys are sitting in meetings and you're coming up with, obviously you've got sort of, I, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the marketplace side of things is sort of a perpetual motion machine that, you know, there's only so many sites that have online classified ads, especially for collector cars. And so I remember in the old days at the old magazine place that you and I used to work at, at different times, even though they would talk about how there's a firewall, right, between advertising and editorial, the firewall was permeable. Yeah. Like there was a, definitely a lot of like, a publisher had the title publisher, but they were actually kind of a sales guy. And the publisher would call up the editor and say, hey, I know you're working on this story. This particular advertiser has something that might be useful for that story. You should talk to them. And we all went along with it because first of all, as long as we're telling an authentic story, that's the job, but also you got to get paid, right? And, and we were all aware of that, right? But what you're running now is sort of a different thing. So you've got this sort of business that's sort of running on its own with the classifieds and the marketplace and the auctions. And you're kind of talking about how content is more of a marketing tool. So what do those meetings look like when you're sitting with your editors and you guys are trying to decide, okay, what are we going to cover and how are we going to cover it? And then is there an interplay between that and advertising and the marketplace? Is it a separate thing? Is it, hey, I mean, like you guys are hemming, so I'm not sure how much Cybertruck coverage you're getting, but like the Cybertruck's all over the internet. We need to capture some of that. Like, you know, like what, what like, is, is there like a traffic play? Is it more like, this is just what we think our audience wants to read. And if you build it, they will come. Like, what does that look like with your business model? Yeah. As an aside, I'll tell you through advance media who has a lot of local, you know, basically news type sites. We did this research on the audience using this company called LiveRamp. And you got back a lot of what you already knew about the audience. But then this one glaring stat was how likely they are to be in market for an EV. And it, it blew me away. So somewhere the Cybertruck is desired in there. It was a good number then? Very good number. Yeah. I mean, at the point now where we're targeted programmatically by obviously not Tesla, because I don't do really any much consumer marketing, but the EV make models for, you know, Volvo, Polestar, stuff like that. Those ads will serve on our site now. Because it's the right demo. Yeah. We do well with first party data because we're a registration based site. So we have a lot of registration. So we're able to leverage that first party data, which is basically going to be the future a lot. And I think that, you know, that's kind of been an aha moment for us is we've got people that are, you know, more than what we ever thought they were. Let's talk about that. So literally this past week, Google started shutting down cookies. So that's going away. Yeah. iOS has already for the last year given consumers the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to opt out of tracking so you can't track me anymore it's definitely getting harder and harder for shops like mine to use third-party data through social and i mean i have to think at the old place when you're kind of running a team of sales guys trying to sell ads in digital and print publications 10 years ago the social thing must have been a really tough deal to get over because you know agencies like mine could say hey we can 44 year old you know southern california natives and make x amount of dollars a year that are into cars i can target that guy all day long and i can do it cheaply and i can get back-end access to 
how they're interacting with the data and with the content and with the ad. And I can follow that lead all the way to close to sale. And the CPM numbers were super cheap. And so as that whole thing is starting to kind of get tougher, and plus there's a lot of regulation happening in Europe and in California with like GDPR and stuff. So it's it's happening. So what do you guys do with that? So let's talk about that. And and can you explain kind of what first party data is and and how that's a benefit to potential advertisers or marketing partners? Yeah. And I'd add on to what you said and also the benefit of doing it the way you were just talking about is owning the relationship with the customer. A lot of advertisers that are savvy in gaining, gaining on. In fact, I'll just call one out that you and I both know, Sean Crawford, who is at Holly. Before he got there, he instituted a mantra of we need to own the relationship with the consumer. And where a publisher or media company is at the intersection between those two things is evolved is like an understatement, right? So, you know, I think in the beginning of that phenomenon, we would always try to position third-party credibility, right? That really the editors at the end of the day, you were trying to leverage that. Now you've also got influencers and they fall into the bucket of, you know, being third-party credible. You know, you kind of have to say it, but it's also true is a lot of these editors, right? They are the OG influencers, even though their shingle may be, you know, hung under a corporate media banner. So still relevant and still, you know, carries weight. It's definitely getting tougher and tougher, right? It's not enough to just find somebody that says, we're going to go top of funnel this year. That's great for publishers, right? Especially in a medium like maybe print that doesn't have as much call tracking or any anymore. Um, there used to be, but that's not every advertiser, right? And so you've got to really be consultative in the approach and figure out maybe how you can bring talent. In programming, it's a lot easier. So we're launching a new show with Brenton this year with a really young gal and her father. It's kind of a build-based show. And so everybody's benefiting in that. The advertisers really like the personality. The personality is new to the space and needs some validation. We need, you know, some varying types of talent in the programming. So when you can get something like that put together, I think that's how you you win in the new age. And knowing how old Hemmings is and, and how many subscribers and users and bidders and advertisers. And I mean, you guys cast a lot of nets for a very long time. So I'm assuming yeah. you're... you're contact database is extensive. Would you do like a second party data play? Like if a brand came to you and said, Hey, we want to do some email blast. This is the picture of the consumer we have in mind for, even if it's like, like you said, an EV or whatever. And then it comes through as like a white label deal through Hemmings. Like, Hey, this is our partner. And we really, you know, want to share this message with you. Is that something that Hemmings would do in the future? Yeah, it is. What we do today, specifically with newsletters, which is probably what gets us in the room with advertisers who aren't familiar with us, specifically newsletters, is we do dedicated in our e-daily, we have placements. We really try to limit the amount of advertising in those because it's a balancing act, right? Between subscribers gained, open rate and all that. Our open rate is almost 60%, which it's one of the things we try to lead with because it's tough to compete with that. Right. And then that usually can get us in the door to other conversations about newer things that we're doing, whether it's with programming or events or something like that. But yeah, we can do targeted. It's obviously a bigger number when you can do that off platform, which we don't do with newsletters, but we do with traditional digital advertising. But yeah, newsletters are, they're a table stake here and we can do better. We do well, but we can do better and, and we will. You know, a lot of our call to action on the side is just to get people to register. 
and sign up in general, but also to get the newsletters as well. That turns into currency as Google, you know, does what they're going to do and privacy becomes a bigger concern. And now you've got the mechanisms in place where you can still have the integrity of somebody's data being private, but you can pass that through to exchanges and to the advertiser ultimately to where they can target that person in a pretty finite way without you know, knowing more than they should about the individual. Interesting. So you're working, I assume, with agencies and directly with brands and big and small. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you, I'm sure, brought a Rolodex of industry contacts with you when you came to Hemmings. What are you seeing out there for small business owners, mid-sized business, you know, managers that are listening to this? What are you seeing and hearing in terms of, you know, the role of whether it's individual influencers, like you were talking about how the, you know, journalists were the original, which I agree, they were probably the original influencer right? And whether it's in fashion, like an Anna Wintour or hot rodding and it's Jeff Smith. You were one of them. Yeah. Well, maybe at some point are influencers journalists. That's still such a kind of a wild West gorilla thing. And and if you're a brand, I think there was an element and I've talked about this in past episodes. There was an element in the old Peterson prime media source link model that made sense for a lot of small and mid-sized businesses, which most of the automotive aftermarket is even today with all the M&A that's happening because it was turnkey. You could call your rep. You could call a Matt Boyce or a Jeff Nassie or like one of those kind of, you could call a salesperson and say, Hey, here's my budget. Here's what I need to do this year. Go. And then they'll come back in a week and say, here's a plan. We're going to have you in these different titles and this will be digital and this will be print. And we're going to fold you into a couple of events that we produce. And it's a turnkey deal. Here's the check you have to write every month. Here's your contract. And that doesn't really exist anymore. So now, I mean, there's companies like Hemmings, and I'm sure you guys would love to say, I'll do that for you. But, but outside of that, you've got all these different influencers and some are paid and some don't want to be paid and some are experiential and some have managers and some are doing everything themselves. And then you start folding in kind of all these independent things and you've got a bunch of enthusiast sites. And how does someone that you're talking to at the SEMA show or wherever you are, you're sitting at the bar somewhere and you're talking to a business owner says, man, I just need to get my product out there. What do they do? How do they manage all this? In the beginning, when the influencer phrase came out, if you were sitting at a media company, like a larger media company, you probably would try to fight that notion with an advertiser or a prospective advertiser, right? And you'd throw phrases out like, name the editor that's got a big following. That's the original influencer, right? I think now, if you try to fight it, you're going to lose trust because I think it's prevalent enough. And I think enough media company employees are, are talking about it too. If you lose the trust, they're not going to listen to what you have to say about the advice you're about to give them about what they should be doing with the product, right? You know, we always want to try to be uh, a consultant in a way with the overall spend. One, it lets us understand what the mindset is of the marketer. And two, you know, they say, we're working with Dan Kahn on PR, you know, great. Here's what you should talk to Dan about. And he's probably going to tell you, don't just put together a static press release anymore, right? Like go get the gray matter of somebody in an agency that does it with a lot of different categories and a lot of different clients, right? So there's that. Then once you kind of, you know, maybe validate what their thought process is or who they're already working with, then you kind of, you can kind of get to what you're doing new that fits in with, you know, what their goals are, what the product is and all that kind of stuff, right? The days of being the 800 pound pound gorilla in the room and getting 95% of the budget by and large gone. That was the case for a long time. And it hasn't been the case, I think, for, you know, almost the definition of a long time too. 
So you got to figure out where you can play in all of it. I think too, you can look at what some influencers are doing and basically offer up, you know, do you want to go with somebody that is just going to get 20 different manufacturers parts, tag them all in a social post and take, you know, a couple bucks and walk away. Like you're going to get what you pay for there. Probably not. And I think you know, once you kind of have this trust established, then you can offer up, you know, that kind of advice. I also think there's a huge business. I think Marla Morris started one for people that, you know, are leaders in this industry to kind of take some of these influencers under their wing and sit them down and just say, how are you thinking you're going to do this, right? Educate the influencers so that the advertisers who inevitably are going to do something with these influencers are doing it in a way where it actually benefits in the end the advertiser, right? So I think you got to play a role of, you know, a, a good industry citizen more than somebody that's just trying to sell their wares, you know, that they have and that's it. So be honest, speak the truth and help and you'll get a piece of the action if you do that. There's a lot of ways to screw up trust. And I'll say this is true. And I think a lot of people say it. the first SEMA after I came to Hemmings, I got done with all the meetings. And even if people were kind of hesitant about, I don't know, you know, can you guys do this? Can you guys do that? The one thing that everybody had was a lot of trust. And so I think it's really important to try to figure out how you maintain that because it may not be an individual ad buy, but it's going to mean conversations in perpetuity as long as you have it. That's good advice. I like that. And I think, you know, and, and I, I would say that, you know, there have been points of in my agency and in your career where you and I have done some business together and there have been points where we haven't spent a lot of money with wherever you were at the time. And I think you've always been a straight shooter and, and I have always admired that and respected that about you. And thank you. So two more questions and then I'll let you go on with your day. And, and this has been really great and I've, I've appreciated everything that you've shared with us. Here's kind of the tough one is you know, where is this all going, Matt? You know, you, you worked at the distribution side of media. You worked for one of the biggest publishing companies in the country as it transitioned into a video on demand company. Now you're working for a family owned publishing company in a marketplace. What is the future of enthusiast media? Is this a trend that's just going to kind of blow over and things are going to sort of normalize? Are we all just going to be stuck watching TikTok videos for the rest of our lives? Like what's next? Where's this all going? Yeah, probably. I hope not. <laughs> whether, whether, yeah, whether it's that platform or another one. And patience has clearly gone out the window with the formats that are the most resonant now. But I think for a media company, it definitely is. This is something a couple episodes you touched on. Like for a media company, it's going to be, is your storytelling what the audience wants to hear, right? Or is it more about you know a corporate goal or a corporate construct or something like that? In the last year, we learned a lot. You know, we did a little bit, I feel like, of something that's, you know, better for the company than necessarily the consumer. But I think we did a lot and learned a lot where we really did try to put content out there that somebody wanted to see that didn't necessarily, you know, sell a car on the marketplace or, you know, didn't maybe always sell an intake manifold or whatever it is, right? Um, it's hard to try to balance all that, right? This goes back to the old world where there was church and state with editorial and advertising, but there was always a little bit of a crossover, you know, and you tried to make it fit for everybody. And I think that's the case today, but it's 
got to lead with the consumer. If you're trying to develop audience and ultimately, secondarily, you can monetize that. And that's kind of, you know, your North Star. I think that's how you're going to be successful. And I think that's where it's going to go. Because if you're an influencer, that's all that matters, right? I mean, you're not as heavily you know, reliant on one particular advertiser that may be 25% of your ad revenue if you're a sales rep or something like that. So I think the storytelling has to resonate with the audience, you know, and you've got to figure out how that can align with, in our case, selling a car or for an advertiser, it might be selling a product. You know, and, and I, I think that it's easy to say that all these options have disappeared with the sort of demise of traditional magazines, but there's actually, the consumer has more choice than ever. It's just a different type of content. You know, if you want car content, just hop on YouTube and oh my God, like it's, it's limitless or go into a Facebook group. And I mean, so it, it, but it's kind of a pick your flavor thing. So you're right. I think it's what you're saying to me sounds like you have to lean on authenticity. And if you tell the story that the consumer actually wants to watch or read and you do it in an authentic way, they'll reward you with their time. And then if you don't, they have 200 other options. They can. You got to listen to them, right? You got to listen to the comments. What built Jalopnik, right? You got to listen to the comments and you, you've got to try to, you know, we, we do try to do that. You know, what should we do with this engine? You know, stuff like that. That's how you keep people coming back. So you're ignoring Rogan and you're actually, you are reading the comment section, <laughs> which can be brutal. Yeah. I mean, I've, been, I've been there, but well, speaking of brutal. So last question, when you think back on your career, what is a challenge or a mistake that you've made and that kind of stands out and what did you learn from it? I think there's so much transition happening in media and you know, the companies, the industry, you can really move too fast. You can really move fast, right? And sometimes you don't have to make a decision until you absolutely have to make a decision. And I think that was probably, there's there's a lot of instances where we, I could have, you know, waited longer to make a decision. And I've learned, like, just trying to be more patient. You know, you're running so fast trying to keep up with could be an algorithm change or whatever else, you know, and just trying to really take an inventory and listen to people and really try to not make a decision until you absolutely have to. And it's kind of a general example. The one thing that we really try to do is we don't try to erase what works for, you know, for people. Even, you know, Prince where I'm alluding to there. Something that works for somebody, but maybe isn't, you know, the future five minutes from now, five years from now, whatever it is, you can plug in print, you can plug in everything in there. It doesn't mean that, you, you know, you have to abandon it, right? And you don't have to do it in a hasty way. You know, that's one thing too. Like, just don't abandon something that got you somewhere that isn't necessarily going to get you a ton further, you know, going forward, right? I mean, that, that can matter too to the business, um, especially in the short term. Yeah, remember who brought you to the dance. Yeah. Good advice. Well, I appreciate all of your time, Matt, and want to thank you for your time and, and for your friendship over the years. If people want to follow you, your work, your company, where do they go? Where, where do they learn more about Hemmings? Hemmings.com. I'd say LinkedIn is also a great place to learn you know, about like the company behind the website and the marketplace. And that's primarily where you'll find me related to business stuff is on LinkedIn. Great. Well, that is it for this episode of Only the Strong Survive, powered by Con Media. I hope you found today's conversation with Matt Boyce of Hemmings interesting. If you did enjoy this conversation, I would encourage you to rate, share, review, and give feedback on whatever platform you use to enjoy podcasts. You can also reach out and talk to us directly. Just email me at otss at conmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Dan Kahn. Thanks for joining us.